Chapter Thirty Five, Part One of Margaret Sanger by Margaret Sanger. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty Five, Part One A Past Which Is Gone Forever. Parenthood remains unquestionably the most serious of all human relationships, the most far reaching in its power for good or for evil and withal the most delicately complex. I always tried to secure my son's confidence by being honest with them, treating them as though they had intelligence and expecting them to use it. For the sake of companionship, it was essential to be honest, no matter what the cost. Fortunately, the younger generation is not crumpled up when sharply confronted with the truth. They have cut through the regard to their feelings until they can say extraordinarily blunt things to each other and yet not be hurt. And with this they have invented a new language. They can take it. Many times I could have forced my opinion on the boys and saved Fern perhaps some bitter disappointments. Let me do it. I'll manage all this. Let me know when you need anything. But instead, I merely stated my attitude and said, Here are the two alternatives. You want this. I think the other is better. Neither of us can tell which is right. If you choose your own way, I'll help you, as long as you do it well, providing you stop as soon as you know it is wrong and go back and pick up the other. If experience teaches you a greater wisdom, you can call it square. At Petty Institute, Stuart was paying more attention to sports than studies. It was easy for him to be an athlete, but he also had a logical mind and a quick ability for coordinating hand and brain. When he was ready for college, he entered Sheffield Scientific School of Yale University. His imagination was soon captured by archaeology and medicine, but his course was already set. Meanwhile, Grant, who had been inclined to hero-worship his older brother, had also gone to Petty. His athletics left little opportunity for bringing out his artistic talents, and he agreed to take his last two years at Westminster School in Simsbury, Connecticut, where he was encouraged to develop along his own lines. In his sophomore year at Princeton, he still had no idea of what he wanted to do with his life. Although he had a leaning towards diplomacy, which would include training in law, I explained to him that, since the family had no political influence, it might lead to being a small politician." and so I made out a list of as many occupations known to man as I could think of, and sent them to him, telling him to mark off with a blue pencil those which he was perfectly sure did not appeal to him, and check with red those for which he felt some predilection. Out immediately went piano-mover, waiter, floor-walker, bank-manager, bookkeeper, and some fifty others. Six months later, 
I returned him the red-checked list for further perusal. Now his preferences were much more definite. Research, journalism, editorial work, diplomacy were again read. But almost everything else marked headed him for a scientific career. The decision made, Grant began his pre-medical course. After Stewart graduated from Yale, he moved downtown to Wall Street and continued in a broker's office all during the Depression. But in this money-making atmosphere, his attitude was changing. He had concluded that serving humanity was a higher fulfillment than profiting at humanity's expense, and medicine seemed the career which he also liked best. Having found out, he had the courage to start back at the beginning to accomplish it. We made a compact for him to go as far as he could and test whether his interest kept up. First, he had to acquire sufficient chemistry and biology. Going to Columbia University in the daytime for the former, to New York University in the evening for the latter, preparing his lessons until three in the morning. The next year, he passed his entrance examinations. Following the legislative near victory in the winter of 1934, I resolved to go to Russia to see for myself what was happening in the greatest social experiment of our age. With keen anticipation, I looked forward to discovering whether the Marxian philosophy dramatized and realized and based on an economic ideology, did not have to accept some of the philosophy of Malthus. Grant, then about to enter his final year at Cornell Medical School, was eager to investigate the progress of medicine in the Soviet Union and made up his mind to come along. I was taking also my secretary, Florence Rose, efficient, competent in any capacity, whether field organizing or in the office. Though but recently enlisted in the movement, she had come more with the attitude of the early days, not for what she could get out of it, but for what she could give to its furtherance. Her talents and enthusiasm, when added to her cheerfulness, made her a rare combination. Always gleeful and bubbling with fun, she carried out nearly everything in that spirit. Mrs. Ethel Clyde, an officer of the Federal Legislative Organization, was to be the fourth of our little group within a large group. When zeal for the new civilization in Russia had been at its height, she had relinquished her expensive Park Avenue apartment for a smaller one on a side street and contributed the difference in rent to sundry leftist causes and birth control. At the last moment, it seemed we might not be able to go. For some years, Stuart had had a bad sinus condition and hardly had he matriculated at Cornell in the fall of 1933 when he had been struck by a squash racket, fracturing the bone over his eye. 
That winter he had been operated on nine times. A week before I was due to sail, this doctor advised that he have an exploratory operation. I rushed up from Washington, where the legislative work for that session was just being wound up and would have abandoned the Russian expedition had not the operation apparently been entirely successful. Stuart insisted that I go. Since he was in no danger, I continued with my plans. It was not feasible to travel in Russia except in a party under official guidance. Three people I knew who had gone by themselves described how train after train had passed them. Boat after boat had steamed down the Volga with no accommodations available. Therefore, we chose the nonpartisan Second Russian Seminar. Shortly prior to leaving, I spent an evening with Maurice Hindus, Will Durant, John Kingsbury, and doctors Hannah and Abraham Stone, all of whom had been to Russia the previous year. Maurice Hindus had returned impersonal and still unprejudiced, Will Durant utterly antagonistic, John Kingsbury full of fervor, and both Stones warmly disposed. They had all been in Moscow, practically at the same time, for approximately the same number of days, and all had received utterly dissimilar impressions. Even pictures that Will Durant had taken were not the same as those of John Kingsbury or Dr. Stone, snapped from almost identical places, thus showing me how wide might be the variety of responses depending on the individual bias. I expected to keep my eyes open, to think independently, to ask questions and compare. I was going to use as much sanity and fairness as I possessed, and not be swept emotionally into any current of opinion. Billy Barber was the manager of the seminar, and I did not envy him his job. There were many complaints and stupid remarks, and much fault-finding. Most of the party were going merely to be able to say those things were true, which they had previously said were true. I asked one woman, who went on every sightseeing expedition but never got out of the bus, Why did you come? Oh, just to wipe Russia off my list. Edward Allsworth Ross was among the leaders. He was the only person who had been there under the former regime some twenty years earlier, and had an authoritative basis of contrast between the old and the new. We all rather sat at his feet. He was a typical professor, wore enormously high, stiff collars, played checkers with anybody who would indulge him, and was upset when he failed to win. His personality was impressive, literally so, because wherever you looked, you spied him. One of the funniest sights was to see this Nordic giant, six feet four, walking with short, dark Florence Rose, five feet two, 
each jollying the other. We scooted through England across to Copenhagen, about which I recall very little. I was always trying to learn what advance the women's movement had made, but somebody was always trying to tell me how marvelous the city was. Remembering Ellen Key, I reached Scandinavia with great hopes for feminism. But the women who were considered the most intelligent were complacently resting on their laurels. The older ones still reigned supreme and believed that, because they had won their battles of twenty-five years ago, there was nothing left to fight for. The younger group found it hard to arise above the inertia of this overwhelming prestige. Since population was not a problem in Scandinavia, they were interested chiefly in eugenics and had almost forgotten the aspect of individual suffering. At Oslo, a number of us went on pilgrimage to the grave of Ibsen, as I stood there in silent tribute, I had the feeling he had understood women and the ties they had been loosening. To my mind, Nora never went back to the doll's house. Her evolution was too complete. Or, if she did return, she entered by another door. Mr. Barber had arranged to feed his hundred and six charges at the last Finnish railroad station. There was a particular exhilaration about the prospect of that meal, because it was to be our final one before crossing into famine-stricken Russia. We arrived at ten in the morning, all of us hungry. As we filed into the station, our eyes met the most gorgeous panorama. Long tables, beautifully laid out with delicious meats, fish, breads, compotes. While we paused, debating which of these delicacies to taste first, there came a stampede of fifty other Americans, a tourist group led by Sherwood Eddy. Never had I seen such an exhibition. The men, unshaven, hatless, coatless, pushed and shoved around, in front of and almost on top of the tables. The best we could do was find comfortable seats from which we could have a good view of the riot. The meal prepared by the railroad with such courtesy for our party was demolished by another. Barber and Eddie eventually discovered it was all a mistake. The train carrying the Eddieites had failed to stop at the town where their repast had been awaiting them, and naturally they supposed this breakfast was theirs. At Leningrad, we were met by buses and driven through streets that swarmed with imperturbable, peasant-like people. The upper parts of their Mongolian-shaped heads all looked exactly the same. I noticed how immaculate they were, Faces, necks, hands were white as white and displayed a cleanliness simply marvelous when you took into consideration the difficulty of securing soap and water. Very few were old. Many were children, apparently between the ages of two to twelve. 
but in the expressions of all I glimpsed a sadness. The former capital was depressing and down at heels, shabby and in need of painting, yet it was beyond comparison in its spacious dignity. The architectural design of the houses could not be hidden. My high-ceilinged room at the Astoria was luxurious with alcove bed, bathroom, and large marble tub, which, although cracked and spotted with rust, nevertheless evidenced the days of splendor, when the hotel had been frequented by the aristocracy of the old regime. From my window I could see the cobbled square. It was eight o'clock, and the city was awakening. I watched the passing show. Heavy wagons were drawn by a single and often most decrepit horse with what seemed a dark brown rainbow, arched and graceful, over his neck. Cues formed in front of little stands that served rations of beer or bottled soda water. Some women, the varying colors in their shawls making bright splotches, swept the car tracks with birch switches or pushed empty carts on their way to market. Others carried hods of cement up the ladders to the masons on the new buildings being erected everywhere. Usually the men were doing the skilled work, and women, hardy and robust, with strong legs, bare feet, sunburned faces were kept at the laborious monotonous physical labor until such time as they could qualify as expert artisans the communists apartments were much better lighter airier cleaner more modern than those for non-party members when we asked why in an equalitarian state one section should be thus privileged we were answered, it was they who made all this possible. Why should they not have the best? What you bourgeois give to your capitalists, we give to our communists. We asked Tanya, our guide, if she were a communist, and she replied, oh no, that's too hard. Ordinary citizens might be excused for a mistake or even a crime, but party members could have no human frailties. They were exiled or perhaps shot for cheating, stealing, deceiving, exploiting, taking money under false pretenses, or many things which average people could do and be punished with fines alone. Although the cost of the trip itself was relatively low, whatever we bought in Russia was excessively high, owing to the peculiar situation of the ruble. In the first place, there was no ruble. It existed only in theory. Second, every foreigner was supposed to deal exclusively with the Torgson stores through which the government had cleverly contrived to come by a hoard of foreign currency by charging 78 cents in our money for each ruble instead of its actual value of five cents. For example, the price of a stamp on a letter to the United States, which was two and a half rubles, amounted to two dollars. Mrs. Clyde, who leaned sympathetically towards communism, 
said to one of our young men, "'Let me get you a little present.' "'Not here,' he said. "'It will be too expensive.' "'Oh, yes,' she insisted. "'What would you like?' "'Well, a bar of almond chocolate, then.' She had to pay ten American dollars for that ten-cent bar of chocolate. Her communism melted slightly. Ultimately, we solved the Rupal problem. One morning, a boy who had been loitering around the Astoria asked Grant, Would you like me to take you through the city? Grant prudently inquired, How much? It appeared that the boy merely desired an opportunity to perfect his English. He had plenty of rubles, which he was glad to dispose of at the rate of fifty for a dollar. Russians could obtain none but the cheapest commodities on their tickets. If they wanted luxuries such as good shirts, leather or rubber boots, and other articles sold only at Torgson, they were obliged to surrender some treasured gold piece or use foreign money. With an ample supply of rubles, I sent long, elaborate cables to Stuart to cheer him up. He must have thought an excessive maternal solicitude was getting the better of my economic judgment. But, as a matter of fact, one of twenty words was costing me less than twenty-five cents. Dr. Nadina Kavanicki, who had been interested in birth control in the United States, had given me a letter to her father, Dr. Reinstein, once a dentist in Rochester, New York, now in Stalin's close confidence. He came to see me about 11.30 one night, the Russian calling hour, and we talked until three in the morning. When he wanted to know my impressions of Russia, I said promptly, It seems to me your policy of overcharging us is a mistake. For the sake of a few dollars, you are creating ill will, just as the French have done. In our own seminar, we have twenty librarians, and perhaps double that number of school teachers and students many of whom have gone without other vacations to come here. They have a unique opportunity to influence people. Everybody will ask them when they get back, did you like Russia? You are trying to build up a favorable public opinion abroad, and these people are the best mediums for that purpose. If they are pleased, they will fight for you and break down prejudice. But, he was not convinced, and, evoking the specter of the Tsarist debt to America, he replied, We'll bleed you. We'll milk you. We'll get every dollar out of you we can. America demands her pound of flesh, and this is how we'll pay you. The occasions for receiving pleasant impressions were offered by vigorous tours to points of interest. We were given a choice of hard buses or harder ones, all, in my experience, springless and clattering noisily over the cobble-paved streets. After a few bumps, we usually hit the roof and came down with headaches. 
Our poor little guides had to screech with full lung power to be heard over the incessant rattling. One morning, when driving back from sightseeing, the motor gasped and collapsed on a slight hill. Passengers volunteered helpful suggestions. Put it in low. Put it in neutral. Push this. Pull that. The driver moved gears forward and backward and then looked around at us in perplexity. I did, but it won't work. We waited and waited and waited and waited. Somebody ran a mile to telephone that we were stranded and needed another bus. Meanwhile, everything we wanted to see was closing, and we had already learned that whatever you missed in Russia was always the most worthwhile. In fact, it seemed they had visiting hours timed to end five minutes before you got there. Several other buses came along and stopped. Their drivers got out, poked their heads under the hood, began taking things apart, strewing bolts this way and nuts that. Then they, too, became discouraged and, leaving increased confusion, climbed on their chariots again and went on. Finally, some bright young man discovered we were out of gas. As we crossed the huge square in front of the hotel, I saw directly ahead of us an enormous pile of bricks with wide spaces on both sides. Closer and closer we came. When will the driver turn? I asked myself. But he never did. We went right over the top, and the bricks slipped out from under. That was the Russian system. You could not go round an obstacle. You must go over it. End of chapter 35, part 1.